This evening, Ram is uh, preaching on John 6, and now Eleanor is coming to read the passage for us. Um, you can find this on page 1069 in the Church Bibles. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us. We thank you that these are words of eternal life. We pray that we would hear them as that we would hear them and know Christ and receive life in him, life to the full. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Artists always have an intention for their work. When they create something, they have some kind of plan in their mind for how it is going to be used. Um, can I have the slide up, please? This, um, yeah, this is a picture of a very famous work of art called The Great Wave of Kanagawa um, by Hokusai, a Japanese artist. Um, he created it in 1831. It's a woodblock print, and it's a print, so he intended that it be reproduced. He, he produced around 1,000 copies of it originally. They found their way into homes, into galleries, um, and you can still see some of those around the world today. That was his intended use. He intended to, to reproduce it, to get this work of art out there for people to be able to look at it, to enjoy it. Now, can we have the next slide, please? 
could he have imagined this use of his work? Could he, would he, when he was creating it, have thought, this is going to be great on a Hawaiian shirt. This is, this is the pair of socks that I'm going to give my wife for Christmas. Maybe, maybe he imagined that. Could we have the next one? This is the work of art that I want to drink my morning coffee out of. This is the Lego set that I'm going to buy my kids. This is whatever that weird bunny thing is in the middle. (laughs) Now, he's not around to say what is done with his work. This is probably one of the most reproduced works of art in the world. But he still had that intention. It doesn't change the fact that he had an intention for his work. And so does Jesus. In the first half of John 6, Jesus does a miracle of astounding creativity. He creates bread, enough bread to feed a crowd of thousands. And immediately after, in verse 15, we are told the crowds intend to come and make him king. But Jesus resists this use of his work. Jesus withdraws from them. These miracles, of course, reveal something to us about Jesus, and we'll come on to what it reveals in a moment. But I think they also shine a light on us and our response to Jesus. They reveal something about the way in which we respond to Jesus when we see him, when we start to see things about him, We inevitably start to respond. And John 6 shows us that there is a kind of response to Jesus that looks kind of right on the surface, but it's actually a response that Jesus withdraws from. It's been quite a while since we were in John's Gospel together, so it's perhaps good to give a bit of a a quick recap of where we've got to so far. Chapter 1 was the introduction, the, the setup of, of Jesus, the, the, the divine word of God, the infinite almighty God who has become flesh. And then in chapter 2 to 4, we started to see this sequence of events uh, where Jesus went through some of the everyday features of first century Jewish life, and he showed how they were all about him, how they how he fulfilled everything that they promised. He delivered what they pictured. He did that with a wedding, with a temple, with a teacher, with a sacred well. And then in chapter 5, John starts this new sequence of events in which Jesus does the same thing with the festivals, with the feasts, the special days of the Jewish calendar. He shows how if they celebrate something, if they, if they picture something about God, he is the one, again, who delivers it. And so in chapter 5, he did that with the weekly special day, the Sabbath. He showed that the rest that it pictures and promises is found in him. Now in chapter 6, we move on to a different special day. We are told in chapter 6, verse 4, that the Jewish Passover festival was near. This was one of the big ones. This was the festival that celebrated their their national independence, how God had rescued them from slavery as a nation, how he'd set them 
to, free to become a, a nation of their own. You can read all about that in the book of Exodus. But this became, this was such a huge event in the national psyche that it became their, their go-to way of describing what it means for God to be their savior, what it means to be rescued by God. And so it's this massive event, this, this very rich and multi-layered event. And so there are so many ways in which Passover points to Jesus, in which Jesus fulfills everything that Passover promises. We've already had a couple in John's gospel. John the Baptist already called Jesus the Lamb of God, a reference to the Passover lamb that, that died in place of the firstborn sons, that died that others might live. In John 6, Jesus is going to take a couple more of those aspects of Passover, bread and water, and he's going to show how they too point to him. It's worth noting briefly how chapter 6 kind of fits together because we're not, we're not going to have time to do the whole chapter today. Um, but it, it breaks into four parts. Verse 1 to 15 is a miracle which is done for the crowds, a miracle with bread. Then verse 16 to 21 is another miracle which is done, this time, not for the crowds, but for the disciples. And this is a miracle with water. Then um, in 22 to 59, he has a, an explanation, a conversation with the crowds. Then in verse 60 to 71, he has an explanation, a conversation with the disciples. So it's miracle, miracle, explanation, explanation. And this week we're in the first two parts, those two miracles, the bread and the water. And I'm going to have to jump ahead a little bit to the explanation, um, but we'll try and focus most of our attention on verses 1 to 21. In the first miracle, he is the crowd's provider. He saves them from starving. He saves them from starving. Verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards them, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And the question I want us to have in the back of our minds as we go through this is, what kind of provider is Jesus? In what way does he provide for us? He, he does provide here, but how? And what does it look like for us to receive that provision? And the testing ground for, for this question of how Jesus provides for us is, what happens when we come to him hungry? Whether you have food on the table tonight or not, what this is about is about fear. It's the fear of not having enough to eat and therefore not being able to continue living. It's the fear of death. The fear of reaching such a point of such hunger that we cannot go on living. Bread is a picture of the need to survive. And when Jesus is doing miracles with bread, he is making a statement about how he relates to that need to survive, that need to live, how he is the one who provides. If anyone has bread, that it comes from him. So while this is a miracle to feed the crowds, he starts in conversation with his disciples. 
It starts with the disciples having not enough bread. In verse 6, Jesus asked this only to test Philip. For he already had in mind what he was going to do already. We're starting to learn a little bit about what it means that Jesus provides. That this is not simply going to happen in our own terms. He has his own plans in mind for how this is going to happen. It's a test for Philip. Not a test that he sets him up to fail in, but a test to set him up to grow in. A test to show him his limits and to show him where he needs to turn. And Philip seems to realize his limits. He answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Philip is from nearby. He's from Bethsaida, which is just close to where this is happening. He knows the local price of bread. And he knows that even if he works his socks off for six months, he's not going to have enough to give this crowd, even just one bite each. Andrew doesn't do much better. Verse 9, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many? He has something. He knows of some food, but it's not enough. It's the right kind of thing to feed the people, but it's not enough. It's not enough to provide for their need to survive, their need to continue living. And Jesus answers, make the people sit down. His disciples say, this, this can't be done. There's not enough bread. And his answer is, sit down, we're going to eat. More than enough bread. Jesus then took the loaves. He gave thanks and distributed to those who were seating as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who'd eaten. Everyone had enough, and there is more than enough. There is an abundance of leftovers. Jesus can provide. He can take care of us. There is no limit for him. He is not limited by how much we can bring, by how much money we have, by how the economy is doing. But more than that, remember the Passover background to this, the timing of this. Every special day has its traditional food. There's turkey, there's birthday cake, there's pancakes. Passover's special food was bread. It was also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Bread Festival. And the special food for this festival is the basic food for survival. Before the rescue from Egypt that Passover celebrates, God made sure that the people had enough bread for their journey out, for their journey to freedom. It was unleavened bread, bread that had no time to rise because they were leaving immediately. And later on in the desert, he, he sends bread from heaven for them. He provides what they need by a miracle. And so bread pictures God providing 
what his people need to live, to keep on living, both in the rescue itself and beyond it. Even if we don't celebrate Passover, we, we all need food to live. We all need bread to live. And later on in this chapter, Jesus will make the claim, I am the bread of life. I am what you need to keep on living. This basic need to eat that we all have, it points to our ultimate need for Jesus. But I've raced through that miracle fairly quickly to reach what I hope is a very obvious conclusion. We cannot provide enough bread. Jesus can. Jesus can provide more than enough. But as always in John's Gospel, there is more going on. There is more to see because we have met this crowd before, this hungry crowd In verse 2, it says, A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. We're in Galilee, it says in verse 1. These are the same Galileans that Jesus has rebuked in chapter 4 for seeing signs, for seeing miracles, but not believing in him. They may also be the same crowd who were in Jerusalem for the previous Passover, who had some kind of belief in him because they saw him do signs, but it wasn't a real trust in him. They were following him around because of these amazing things he was doing. And he'll say to them, if you look ahead in chapter 6, verse 26, he'll say, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. They enjoy The signs, they appreciate the bread, but they fail to see that the signs are pointing to something, that they're pointing to Jesus. But you might say, well, isn't that a bit of a harsh way to read their reaction? After all, don't they want to make him king? Isn't that what he wants? Doesn't he own that title, the king of Israel? Isn't that what he claims when when he says things about having the authority to judge all people, to save all people? In verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world. This is a very specific reference to a promise that was made just after the exodus at the end of of the life of Moses who had had led them um, through that great rescue of God, he, he gave them a promise that there would be another similar to him but superior to him, another better, a prophet like him, a leader, perhaps even a king sent by God to lead them out of slavery into the promised land once and for all. Moses was there and, and was the means by which there was a miracle, a bread miracle in the desert, bread from heaven. And Jesus is doing something very similar here. He's feeding them bread in a miraculous way and they make the right connection. This is the prophet. 
But if they are right, then why does Jesus, knowing that they intend to come and make him king by force, withdraw to a mountain by himself? Is he not the king? Why is he hiding? The problem is we have to... It's not really enough to simply say Jesus is Lord, to say Jesus is King. We have to mean by that the same thing that he means by that. And these people don't. They see Jesus as the kind of king who is there to give them unlimited bread. They think, wouldn't it be great to have a king who can provide unlimited food? they start to see the merchandising opportunities, the mugs, the Hawaiian shirts. This this is going to be a way that we can really prosper ourselves. Think about it. Think how well our economy could do if we had a guy in charge who could make unlimited bread. Famine, don't need to worry about it. We'll have more than enough. We can export We can make trade deals to secure peace. We can sell. We can make massive profits. We can use those profits to increase our military spending. It's Passover. It's Independence Day. The the patriotic spirit is in the air. And the Roman Empire is Egypt all over again. Here's 5,000 men, the beginnings of an army. Let's do this. Let's install Jesus as king by force. They want a revolution. And Jesus is having no part of it. He will not be domesticated. He will not be tamed. He will not be put on a leash to be used for our purposes. The next day, he will refuse to make them more bread. He'll refuse but make the same point that he's making this day. Whether he provides or whether he doesn't, he's teaching us that our only hope of lasting life is in him. Have you experienced God relating to you like that? Sometimes he provides us with the bread we need to show us where to turn for spiritual bread, for eternal life, for lasting life. He gives us our daily bread to show us that he's capable of providing more than enough. But sometimes he allows us to go hungry, to remind us that our hope of lasting life is not only in this world. The bread miracle is just the wrapping paper of the real bread of himself. But it's so easy to make Jesus providing into a sign that points to nothing except itself. A miracle that says nothing except Jesus will give me whatever I need. When we think that, we start to try and use Jesus to provide for what we have in mind. Not for what he has in mind, but for what we think we need. We might say, yes, Jesus, King of my life, my Lord, but deep in our hearts, what we really want is him to give us the revolutions that we think need to happen. And we start to, to co-opt Jesus as a figurehead for our own revolutions, for how we want the world changed. 
whether that's in our own lives or in the lives of the communities or the groups of the, that we belong to. And Jesus withdraws from that. Jesus pulls back from people who think that that is all he came for. So what did he come for? What is he here for if he's not just a king who came to provide us bread on demand? In what way does he provide? Well, there is the first miracle for the crowds, uh, and that speaks of the general sense in which Jesus provides. But then we zoom in on the disciples, on that specific group of people who follow Jesus, and we find out what, in what way does Jesus provide for them? In what way does Jesus provide for us? Because we are disciples too. Both miracles that he does here, he saves them from danger. In one, he is saving them from starving. In another, he's saving them from storms. And in the second miracle, we start to see Jesus as king more on his own terms, of what kind of king he is, of what he provides. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. It was dark and Jesus hadn't yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. Notice that they weren't frightened until they saw Jesus. They didn't seem to be too frightened by the waves. These were experienced sailors. The, the stormy sea of Galilee was just a bad day at the office for them, although that danger of death was always there. But that's kind of a background fear to the fear they feel when they see Jesus walking on water. And behind the fear of storms, behind the fear of starvation, even, there is a bigger fear. Real fear is when you see a man with such power in him that he is strolling on storm waves. Do you know what a wave in a storm would do to you if you were in it? Someone who just walks over that. That can only be the one who separated the waters in creation to create the land. That can only be the one who commanded them to come back to flood the earth in judgment. It's not just a king who we can bring in to power our own revolutions. This is God on the earth. Fear is the right reaction. It is now clear that Jesus is no, he's not someone we can just bring in as a puppet king, not someone we can borrow as a figurehead for the ways in which we want the world changed. When you catch sight of this, when you catch sight of the power of the holiness of God, instantly you realize your own unworthiness, your own unholiness. And all those ideas of how we might use Jesus 
fade into nothing. The storms that we face, the fears in our lives are nothing compared to this fear of coming face to face with our creator. So much power within him and he is walking on the waves towards you. It's like a a loaded gun pointed at your face. And the question that we've been building up to throughout this whole chapter finally gets his answer. How does he provide? Well, in this miracle, he provides for his disciples in two ways. And then he commands one response. The first way he provides is he is with us. He's with us in the sea. He said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat. The sight of God approaching them fills them with terror. It makes them terrified, afraid of judgment. But what comforts them, what turns this around, what makes them willing to take him in is when he says, it is I, do not be afraid. John is a big fan of these kind of expressions that have two meanings these kind of multi, he notices the multi-layered nature of what Jesus is saying and when he says it is i in the original it's it's more like i am it is the divine name of god yes i am god i am who i am i'm the one who created you the lord almighty walking towards you but there's also that sense of it's me It's Jesus. You know me. You know me. I I fed you earlier. I called you to myself. I befriended you. I love you. I look after you. I've come to be with you. And both of those come together in this moment of Jesus just standing on the water. The waves crash around him. I am God, but I am with you. I'm with you in this storm. There's an incredible mercy in Jesus that as he comes to us on these stormy waters, he doesn't come to whip them up, to drown us. He walks over them to join us. He gives us his presence. Disciples of Jesus, Jesus is with you. Whatever storm you feel like you are in, he is with you. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of the storms that can kill your body. Don't be afraid even of the storm of judgment of the God who can destroy body and soul because he has come here to be with you. Not to condemn, but to save That's your daily bread. That is your lasting life. That is what Jesus provides. He provides his presence to be with you by his Holy Spirit. Every moment, even now, he is here with you. Just let him into the boat. But that's not all. There is another way 
that Jesus provides. It's not just that he's with us. There's actually another miracle here, or really another part to this second miracle. And we almost don't notice it because it's contained in just one word in verse 21. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And the boats reached the shore where they were heading. That's not what it says. It says, and immediately the boats reached the shore where they were heading. As soon as they let Jesus in, they arrive on dry land. They're safe. As soon as they let Jesus in. And like the bread, this is another Passover-flavored miracle. In the rescue from Egypt, God had led his people out of slavery with a water miracle, parting the Red Sea in the Exodus. And God's enemies were swept away in the waters, but those who trusted him were kept safe, were brought safely through to dry land. Moses led them through the dangerous waters to the promised land, and Jesus does the same. He doesn't simply come to be with us. He comes to bring us to dry land. Of course, the journey is far from over for God's people, both in the Exodus and in the disciples' boat, but, and the same for us as well. But Jesus gives us a sign that he can do it. He can do it in the blink of an eye. Whenever he wants, he can immediately bring us home. Home to that lasting life. That land that is pictured by the the abundance, the overflow of provision in the feeding of the crowd. A land where we never hunger again. A land where there is no sea to drown in a land where we are truly safe from starving and from storms. And Jesus can bring us there in an instant, whenever he chooses. And the response he calls for is to receive him as king. Not on our terms, not for our revolutions, but to come with that, that sense of fear initially that this is God, but also that sense of joy that this is God with us, to hold both of those together. That is the way that Jesus wants us to relate to him. That is what the fear of the Lord means. It's not a fear that drives us away from him. It's a fear that invites us into him. It's only as we fix our eyes on him that we will overcome whatever else it is we're afraid of. It is I. Do not be afraid. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you walked towards us on the waves.
We thank you for everything that is summed up in that. For your holy glory as our creator God and your incredible love to come and rescue us. We pray that you would teach us to receive you as king in the way that pleases you. To teach us to walk in a holy fear of you and to find there a deep trust and satisfaction in everything that you provide for us. For your glory, Lord. Amen.